Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 26. We'll be in verses 17 through 29. Kids in the Bibles that we have uh, provided y'all, um, <clears throat> or if you got one on the back table, um, our passage starts on page 832. <coughs> I had cheese last night. It's never a good thing for me. Um, so um, <clears throat> bear with me. Um, all of redemption history looks to this event that we begin to look at today. Um, this is Passover uh, that we're going to uh, to begin to look at. Um, and uh, this is the last day of Jesus's life. Um, Passover is a, is the beginning of a week-long feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Pastor Kyle did a great job last week of showing us the significance of the Passover. And uh, so I won't go into great detail here on that. However, there are a few things I think we need to consider about Passover to keep it in context of what we see here. And maybe we'll answer some questions and some confusion that you may have that I know that I've had in the past. Um, <clears throat> Passover uh, begins on the evening of the 14th of the first month of the Hebrew calendar year, the month of Nisan. And um, this coincides with the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <clears throat> because they're back to back, the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread has kind of been lumped together to be considered Passover. So it, it's all Passover, uh, widely considered. At the risk of oversimplification, Passover is a bit like Christmas is for us. Not in what it's signifying, but in how it's observed and how it's practiced. Let me give you, let me give you an, um, uh, an example. Like the, the, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days long. And the, and the first day of Unleavened Bread and the last day of Unleavened Bread are to be Sabbaths. Now that doesn't mean that every Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on a Saturday and ends on a Saturday. It comes on the 14th of the month. So there's special Sabbaths. And so what the practice was then was that if it fell on a Friday and there was a regular Sabbath right after that, then they would postpone the beginning of the Sabbath. This is the way Calvin, John Calvin simplified it for me. Uh, I didn't talk to him. I read it. Um, but he would say they would postpone it so that there wouldn't be two Sabbaths back to back because you can't shut down Israel for two days. And so they would like suspend it to start all on the same day. So there would be one Sabbath and, and so it would start on the Saturday. <clears throat> and, um, and so <clears throat> like Christmas here, you see some churches go, eh, if Christmas falls on a Sunday, we're not going to have Christmas services on Sunday. We'll just do it all on Saturday. We'll kind of lump them together. You know, does that make sense? And so that's what we see here. And so because it's all considered Passover as well, you know, um, there and and to even be more confusing, it starts on like six o'clock. The, the first of the day of a Hebrew day starts at six o'clock at night. And so Passover would be the first act of the day, the observing the Passover meal would be the first thing that happened 
on the day of Passover. And so um, we kind of refer to a longer time of Christmas. It's not just Christmas Day. It's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas week. You know, I mean, so Passover kind of, yeah, it's Passover, but the whole week kind of gets lumped together as Passover. And so for us, if we're talking about Christmas dinner, if we're talking as a family about Christmas dinner, we know we're talking about Christmas Eve. But if Heather's aunt calls and says, what are y'all doing for Christmas dinner? We know that she's asking, what are we doing Christmas night? And so it's just this confusing thing that kind of all gets lumped together. But so Passover was this huge undertaking because if you lived in Judea, you had to observe Passover within the walls of Jerusalem. And so I'm sure you've seen some of these reports that the that the Passover uh, because of Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to a million people. And we know from Passover that every family had to have a lamb sacrificed. And so even if you look at Jesus with at the very least, you've got 13 people getting a lamb together. So we're talking maybe 100,000 lambs that have to be slaughtered in the course of a day to prepare for Passover. And so it's quite the scene to get an undertaking to get that done. And so I say all this by way of explanation to help us kind of set the scene, but also to maybe explain why Jesus seems to be having a Passover dinner the, the night before everyone else is. Because Jesus is having it, you know, they're asking here and they will ask in our passage, where will you have us prepare to eat the Passover? And he's doing it that night. Well, if you read the Gospel of John in John uh, 18, 28, we'll read that the chief priest after Jesus was arrested didn't enter into Pilate's headquarters because they wanted to stay ritually pure to eat the Passover. So the next day, they, so uh, and that's the next day from what we're talking about today, right? And so <clears throat> it could also, uh, uh, and in John 19.31, John mentions that this day uh, that Jesus was killed was the day of preparation. <clears throat> so this could possibly also explain why we don't have any mention of lamb in Jesus's Passover meal. Because all the lambs were sacrificed on the next day. Does this make sense? I, I started out trying to clear something up and I can only see half of your faces and so I don't know whether it's being clear or not. Anyway, <clears throat> it helped me to think about it. If you want to talk more about it, I'd be more than happy to visit with you about it. <clears throat> but the whole thing that we're reading about, beginning today in 2617, all the way through chapter 2761, is the day of Passover, is the day that we're talking about, that we begin to look at today. So we'll consider this for the next uh, couple of weeks, Lord willing. But Passover is a feast and a religious observance that had, at this point, been held for over 14 centuries. So every year for 14 centuries, they had been holding this feast. And so generation after generation, Look back at that day, the day that the Lord, Israel's God, redeemed them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. A day that had profound significance for them. 
as God rescues his people and brings judgment on those who treat God's people harshly. So there were two sides to the Passover coin. Blessings of redemption for God's people, marked by their trust and obedience to Yahweh, but also curses and, reje uh, and rejection and wrath for those who did not heed God's word through the prophet Moses, nor the signs and wonders that Moses did, nor did they heed the plagues that were brought on Egypt in judgment. But those plagues were a gracious act for Israel because the Lord said that he was bringing those plagues upon Egypt. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord your God and there is I am the one true God. So for hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds of years, God's people looked back at that day, at that Exodus day, that Passover meal as the watermark for Israel, as their seal of authenticity as the people of God. But while that was a remarkable thing in their history, it happened a long, long time ago. And while God's people had continued to experience hardship, they experienced times of disobedience and unbelief. They experienced judgment for unbelief. But Jesus Christ comes into this context claiming to be the long-promised Messiah. Not only did he claim to be the Messiah, but he, he performed signs and wonders that revealed that he is who he said he was. He spoke of the kingdom of God that had come, but it was a confusing kingdom that came in a way that no one expected. Though Jesus kept saying to them over and over again, he's showing them from the scriptures that they should have expected the Messiah to look like this and they should have expected the kingdom of God to be like this. And what Jesus' disciples both then and both now learn in our passage today is that the Passover has always been looking forward to Jesus. Where um, uh, Jesus has always been front and center in the Passover. So let's read verses 17 through 19 in our passage. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. This is our first point. The time is at hand for the true Passover lamb. The time is at hand for the true <clears throat> Passover lamb, the lamb of God. The fact that Jesus is at the center of Passover is subtly mentioned here in verse 18, where his disciples ask him, where will you have us prepare the Passover? And his response is, my time is at hand. And so he sends them into the city to a certain man and says, <clears throat> we're going to have the feast at your house. <clears throat> it's thought that Jesus kept the Passover <clears throat> meal secret in the location secret because he knew that Judas had already sold him out. And so he wanted to ensure that he would be able to have this feast before he was arrested. 
And so the Passover is Jesus's time. I think I've subconsciously kind of always read this and thought, oh, uh, as the crucifixion, as an echo of the Passover and gone, oh, isn't it cool the way that that God made it all work out where this would actually happen on Passover? And so we're thinking back to that. But no, it's God has graciously and, and forcefully rescued his people from Egypt through the lamb and through the blood on the doorpost. And that did save them for a night. But that had no lasting bearing um, um, uh, on their uh, on them going forward. It, it saved them in the moment, but it was always showing them, no, there's something else coming. There's something there's a greater fulfillment coming. Yes, animals were sacrificed for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it did nothing to change the disposition of their hearts or cleanse their consciences. It's a very important thing to remember and to memorialize. But as Pastor Kyle mentioned last week, Passover actually pointed to someone who could really save you. And Jesus is making that clear in 17 through 29 that Jesus is the Passover lamb. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, in this passage, Jesus is taking the Passover celebration and saying, let me show you what it really means. The time for the Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb, the time for the true Passover Lamb that the Lord will provide has arrived. Our second point that I'd like for us to see, for us to observe here, is that this is a time of examination for all people. Let's read in verses 20 through 25. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Rabbi?" And he said to him, You have said so. So this is a time of examination for all people. We see in this section here that this is a time to examine your sin, a time to examine your sin, not just your sin, but your propensity to choose sin over the things of God. There's a real concern expressed here on the part of the disciples as Jesus mentions that one of you will betray me. The thought of betraying their Lord seems unfathomable, but unfathomable, but there's also in their in their questions, their sense they you sense a uh, that they think it's a possibility that it could be me. They hope it's not them, but they know that it's not the beyond the realm for them. Do we understand this about ourselves? We're frail and we're weak in our constitution. 
We'll see more about that next week as Jesus tells his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But we should confess. We should confess this about ourselves and plead to the Lord to work in us. We can't seem to get out of our own way in regards to sin. I've had this conversation with some of you recently where we lament the fact that we continue to fall for the same sins over and over and over again. And we know we do it. We consciously do it. And immediately we find sin once again failing to deliver on its promises. And so we crawl back to the Lord in shame. We understand how in times in our own life when we're presented with God way, God's way and presented with our way, that we inevitably, in the course of a day, will choose our way over God's way. We understand that about ourselves. We should not only examine our, uh, our sin in that way, but we should examine how we respond and react to conviction of sin. There's a difference between how the disciples respond to Jesus' uh, um, um, saying here and how Judas responded. Judas's sin has been called out. Jesus has put a finger on it right before Judas's eyes. The Lord has, has identified it to his face. But rather than repent, Judas just simply pays it lip service and feigns righteousness. Is it I, Rabbi? An honorable term. As you consider your sin, when we silently confess during the Lord's Supper, how many times does the Lord bring a sin to your mind and you just go, yeah, yeah, that's always there, and just brush over it? Yeah, it's there, but I'm, I'm not going to do anything with it. Have some sins become such a fact of life that you have no intention of doing anything about them? And just acknowledge them, but pay it lip service? In addition, examine your resolve to actually turn from sin and choose the narrow gate. There are some sins in our life that are so ingrained that we cope with them and we develop workarounds on them for years so much that they become a part of us. We've fallen for the lie that repentance is burdensome and constraining. We believe that repentance is heavy lifting. But picture your young, young Christian in, their, in Pilgrim's Progress who had that burden on his back. Is it harder to carry that burden? Or is it harder to lay it down? Now, I don't want to trivialize this. Repentance is costly. And it can have serious ramifications and consequences. But the difficulty of laying down a sin pales in comparison to lugging it around day after day, moment after moment, for years on end. Brothers and sisters, sin is a burden that ultimately never satisfies. It never delivers. It robs you of peace, and it robs you of life. This passage calls us to examine our sin in light of Christ, in light of God's Knowledge of you. Examine your sin in light of God's 
knowledge of you. Those disciples knew that Jesus knew more of them than they knew of themselves. They're asking Jesus, is it me that's going to sin? Is it me that's going to betray you? Jesus was not fooled. Jesus knew all there was to know about them, but also Judas. He knew Jesus, Judas had betrayed him. As we've said before, you're confessing sin to the Lord who already knows. Why do we act like he doesn't? Why are we keeping it from him? Why are we holding on to it? Do we think that somehow we are more capable of dealing with our sin and we can figure it out as opposed to him? This passage also encourages us to examine our sin in light of God's sovereignty. God's purposes are never thwarted. Judas had co-opted had, had co with the rulers and authorities of Israel to, to kill this man, to silence him. But God's sovereignty is over it and it's going to accomplish God's, promise, God's purposes. <clears throat> you can never sail beyond his borders. You can never escape God's reign. You either allow him to deal with your sin here or you'll deal with it for eternity in judgment. This passage also encourages us to examine our sin in light of God's kindness. God's kindness to all people. God's causes, God causes his reign to fall on the wicked and the just. God provides for all. God doesn't just provide for Christians. He, does, he, he provides for every person. The one shaking his fist and denying that he exists and the one that seeks to order all of, all of life according to his commands. God is graciously, God shows kindness to all people by graciously commanding his people to proclaim the goodness of God to them so that the world may know him. He's made his invisible attributes known to everyone. But it's not only examining God's kindness to all people, examine our sin in light of God's kindness to his people throughout all of history. How faithful has God been to his people? Don't miss that the first Passover was commanded to be eaten in haste with their cloak tucked in their belt on their haunches, ready to go at a moment's notice. Sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand, their belt fastened, ready to go for deliverances at hand. How do they eat this meal? Verse 20, they reclined at table. Was God faithful? Yeah, he rescued them from their enemies. We don't have to eat on our haunches anymore. We can be reclined at table reflecting on what God has brought us from. Yes, he did rescue our forefathers and we enjoy the benefits of that today. We're not in Egypt anymore. He gave them rest from their enemies on every side. And we re represent that by reclining at table, re remembering God's kindness to us. Now here, these disciples were with him all the time, day after day for the last three years. 
This was a horror thinking about someone in this group who who tasted of God's kindness every single day could betray him. They had seen his goodness. They'd seen his consistency. They'd seen his tenderness. They knew firsthand of his love. But Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Brothers and sisters, examine your sin in view of God's kindness to you. Not just meeting your every need, but revealing to you who he is. As we thought about last week, if religious experience is what we're after, Judas had that in spades. He's got us all beat. He saw the miracles. He heard the sermons. He saw the signs. He knew the ways that Jesus had revealed himself as the son of God. But Jesus has also revealed himself to you. You hear that Holy Spirit voice in your head. You hear the still small voice that says this is the way walk in it. And he has placed family and brothers and sisters in this local church around you. Who are actually concerned for you. And pray for you and call you to the narrow path as we just prayed. That we would share our lives with one another. So knowing that people are concerned for us and they're seeking to encourage us and walk alongside of us and, 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 and give us joy in the journey and encouragement to fight sin. You understand the conviction of sin. You've seen how the Lord has loosed you from struggles in the past. You participate in the means of grace here on Sunday morning. You've had God's word read to you. You know something of his fulfilled promises. You sing of his mercy and his grace for his people. You enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with other and with other believers. Jesus Christ has been kind to you to make himself known to you. And you fellowship with him here. Examine your sin also in view of God's warning. We see that in our passage. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Yes, Jesus said throughout his ministry that it must be that he would be betrayed and he would be rejected by the elders and the rulers of Israel and that he would suffer and die and on the third day be raised again. But Jesus says that does not get the man off the hook by whom that betrayal comes. Here we have a classic case of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't think this allows us to take a fatalistic look at sin and go, well, what's the use? I mean, it had to be this way. <clears throat> so Judas didn't have a choice. He had to do it. How else is this going to happen? So Judas doesn't, you know, I mean, Judas shouldn't be blamed for this. You may object to the to this warning. If, if it was predestined before time that it was going to happen, it's essential for salvation, then why find any fault with Judas? Romans 9.19, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But why does Jesus give us this warning in verse 24? if not to offer the opportunity for repentance for Judas. 
Even for Judas, he's offering out the opportunity for repentance. Look at it. If Jesus wanted to stop the whole deal, all he has to do is call out Judas by name and say, Eleven, you know who's going to do this? This guy. What are you going to do about it? We can stop it tonight. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he uses the circumstance to put Judas's sin front and center. He puts all of their sin front and center. In this case, in Judas's heart, he, he identifies it for Judas. And Judas could have stopped at any time and said, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I've done a terrible thing. Have mercy on me. Now, at some point in this whole process, certainly Judas passed the point of no return. I don't know when that is. But I know if we read this word, if we look at the words on the page and apply it to our own lives, I can say that the opportunity for repentance for you is still available because you are not dead yet. And God is still speaking. But there's another side to this warning coin as well, right? It's not just an opportunity for repentance. It's not the threat of judgment, so turn from it. But it's also the promise of judgment if he doesn't repent. It would be better for him if he were never born. It would have been better if he never existed. If he never felt the sun on his face. If he never felt fresh wind, the fresh wind of even one breath, the taste of one meal, all of which have been graciously provided him by this God that stands before him. He would choose non-existence over the horrors that await him if he rejects this offer of repentance. Judas is turning his back on the basic kindness of God as well as the special privileges that he's seen. This is why we read that warning in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 today. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That is a frightening warning. But the very next verse, Hebrews 9, 9 says, though we speak in this way, yet for your case, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Those who are truly of God, who have experienced his grace and kindness, lay their sin aside and pursue God's ways of righteousness when lie on God's gracious aid and the redemption that the Lord Jesus provides us. Yes, this is a time of examination for all people. But lastly, our third point I'd like for us to see 
is that this is a time of assurance for those who respond in faith. Let's read verses 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. This is a time of assurance for those who respond in faith. We see this in the institution of the Lord's Supper, a meal which these disciples partake of together. Jesus picks up the bread and shows it to them and says, this is my body. And then he and he breaks it, signifying that he's about to suffer. <clears throat> and then he gives it to his disciples and says, take, eat. This is my body. Now, there's quite a bit happening here in this verse. Why is it bread and not lamb? Why is every why is every church service not uh, wafting with the smell of uh, a rotisserie lamb out front that every week uh, that, you know, that would be great. But uh, why is it bread? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. In John 6, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness that is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus commands them to take and eat this bread. This should remind us of a couple of other verses that we've seen uh, in John 6 that were very controversial in that day. Jesus says in John 6, 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now we can see that this, uh, we can see from this that Jesus is comparing the bread and the wine to his body and his blood. But this isn't saying that whoever participates in the Lord's Supper will live forever. That's not what this is saying. It's important for us to understand that eating here is just as big a symbol, is just as big a sign as the body and the blood, as the bread and the wine are. Eating is also a sign. It's equated with faith. Eating is equated with faith. We see... Um, um, Jesus just in this in this John passage talks about 
Um, Whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Well, it says uh, um, feeding and drinking equal uh, abiding. Feeding and drinking or believing. And so believing on him and feeding on him are uh, are similar. And so this eating is a is a sign equated with faith. If we look back at the Passover, what was the command to Israel? It wasn't just to slaughter a lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost. What else? It was eat, eat. That was the command. Eat it. The Lord was providing for you the, that he would eat in faith, knowing that he will do what he said and that the food was provided to sustain you for for your redemption. That's you're to eat it. So when we eat the bread, we are exhibiting faith. We're forsaking all others. I'm reminded of Jesus's words in John four. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing of. So the disciples said to one another, did has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And so by eating, we are placing our trust in Jesus and in his work. We're exhibiting the trust that Jesus commands in Matthew 6. Don't worry. Don't ask what we shall eat or what shall we shall drink or what shall we wear. The pagans run after those things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will provide it to you as well. And so when we do this, we are, we are saying along with Jesus, we have a food that you know nothing about. Even in this simple bread, we are exhibiting faith. We are acknowledging that Jesus is our sustaining bread. He is our all-satisfying treasure. And so by partaking of this bread, we are signifying our faith that Jesus is sufficient for us, is sufficient for us in every way. And we endeavor to seek his kingdom and his righteousness as we eat the bread. And then Jesus raised the cup and commanded them to drink of it. All the same symbols of faith in eating are also uh, present in the drinking. And he says that this cup is symbolic of his blood. And notice a couple of things. One is that this is the blood of the covenant, he says. Covenants were sealed with an oath of blood. This blood signifies a new covenant that God is making with his people. We read about that in Jeremiah in our Old Testament reading in Jeremiah 31. For, For one, this covenant, this blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, which is a big deal coming off the examination that we just saw in 23, 25, right? So Jesus is giving us assurance that what you're, as you examine your life, as you have the courage to examine your life and confess your sins, this, this is assurance. This is a, 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 a promise to you, a, sh- a symbol that your sins are forgiven. Jesus is saying, drink in faith, knowing that your sins are pardoned. And in Jeremiah 31, he says that I will give them, this is a, uh, I will make with them a new covenant. Not like their fathers did when they ate the bread in the wilderness and then they sinned and judgment came upon them and they fell away. No, you're not going to be able to fall away in the new covenant. No, you won't be. This is brand new for you. I'm sealing you. 
I'm providing for you. I'm setting you apart. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. You won't have to have another sacrifice ever again. This is a better sacrifice than that of bulls and goats. For Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed on our behalf and our sin has been taken away. Drink in faith, relying on the blood of Christ. But there's also another aspect to the new covenant that I'd like for us to see here. And it's an important one because we confess that double mindedness and that and that love for sin. And we consider how we're prone to wander and we feel the precariousness of our souls. But in Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, with his people, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Now we'll write it on their hearts. No longer will anyone have to call it to your attention. You'll know it. You'll know it for yourself. You know the Lord. You, you have a desire to do my will. It's coming. It's coming. It's not all at once. But every time we have this meal, it's reminding you of what's coming. And it's calling you anew to, to, to examine yourself and to and to renounce the past and to go ahead, go move forward with Christ. The Lord seals our hearts. He gives us new hearts. He places the law within us so that we desire good things. So, so all of that and so much more is present in the wine of the cup. It's an assurance that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And look who the blood is poured out for. Verse 28, it's poured out for the many, for the many. I still hear, see, you hear Judah say it's poured out for the many. At this point in time, it may possibly be possible that Judas could have said, wait, even in this moment, I confess that this is the most heinous of crimes, selling out the Lord of glory, but there's hope for me in the blood and the cup. There is assurance here for us too. Who is the blood of Jesus poured out for? For whoever eats this flesh and drinks of this cup in faith, trusting in his promises, trusting in his righteousness, trusting in his sufficiency, trusting in his mercy, trusting in his merit, trusting in his covenant, trusting that he who began this good work in you will carry it on to the completion in, in the day of Christ. Which leads us to our last point of assurance. In verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The drinking of wine in this setting is like a symbolic celebration, the fellowship of dear friends. You know, you see it all the time where, <clears throat> you know, an old friend comes over and you go, I've been saving this bottle of wine for a special occasion and we're bringing it out. No, this is better than that. You may see in a movie where the two brothers, you know, one goes off to war and then the brother comes home and he's on the front porch of his of his big brother's house and he comes in and the big brother goes I got something I want to show you and he pulls out a bottle of scotch and 
It's got dust all over it. And he says, the day you left for war, I got this bottle and I was going to drink it on myself. And I said, no, I'm going to put it aside and I'm going to drink it when you come home. And it's so meaningful, right? This goes even beyond that. Because Jesus is saying right now, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until we all do this together. Jesus is in some way abstaining. Jesus is denying himself. He's denying himself a pleasure of heaven until the day that he's able to enjoy it with you. Till he's able to enjoy it with us. Once again, this is remarkable. Jesus is withholding a privilege for himself as a sign for us, a certain sign that he will one day again enjoy it with us. Our final redemption is a certainty for those who respond in faith. <clears throat> this is as comforting as Jesus saying in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? If I'm not coming back for you, would I even would I tell you this? I promise I'm coming back for you. Jesus here is saying, I'm not going to drink abyss ever again until you're with me, until all of you are with me, until David, until Moses, until Abraham, until Geo, until we're, until, until we're all together again. I'm abstaining, I'm withholding something so that we can all do this together. Jesus is looking forward to our day of redemption. This isn't something he's got to do. It's not like parents on your parents on on Christmas morning. Kids where, you know, you got to beg them to get out of bed. And, you know, you gotta, please, can we go downstairs? No, Jesus is the one that can't sleep at night. Jesus is the one tossing and turning, looking at the clock, waiting, can't wait for morning to come. He is looking forward to our redemption. He's the one pacing the room waiting for Christmas morning. He is ready for the redemption of the children of God. So do we await our redemption? Or do we secretly in our own way seek our best life now? Do we deny ourselves anything in view of our approaching redemption? Are we the faithful and wise servant, wise servant whom his master will find waiting and doing the will of God when he comes? Do we live in a way that's dependent upon grace for renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living in self, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? This is a very helpful passage for us to keep in mind. Because Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, it is incumbent upon us to live examined lives in view of our sin, in view of God's knowledge of us, in view of his sovereignty, in view of his kindness, and in view of his warnings. But he also, also, also graciously offers us assurance, a kindness that leads to repentance, a call to turn from relying on worldly means 
but resting on Christ and his kingdom and his righteousness. An assurance that even the most heinous of sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. We are also encouraged in our faith by the fact that according to his promises, he is making his, us new and he is writing his law on our hearts. It's not already done. He's doing it now. He's working on us right now, even as we hear this message. And because we know that God's promises are true, our hope and our joy is found in the certainty that we will be with him. Finally, fulfilling our chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever.